Psalm 133, page 546, if you are in uh, the Pew Bible. Starting in verse 1, David says, How good and pleasant it is when brothers live together in harmony. It is like fine oil on the head, running down on the beard, running down Aaron's beard onto his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon falling on the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord has appointed the blessing, life forevermore. God's word this morning. Let's open with some prayer. Lord, thank you for this passage. Thank you for the call to unity and the reminder that unity is good. And I pray that you would have us unified this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'm going to ask you guys a question, and I know we're Baptists, but I want you to shout out on this one because I'm, I'm curious uh, what you think. If I were to ask you who the greatest team, athletic team, ever assembled, <laughs> you're jumping the gun there. What would you guys say? What team? Clemson. Clemson. I'm being serious. This is a serious question. <laughs> any decade, any. The undefeated Dolphins. Okay, none of you are right. You're all wrong uh, with everything you shouted out. Uh, the only appropriate answer is the 1992 USA men's Olympic basketball team. They were so good, they were nicknamed the Dream Team, right? This is the greatest athletic assemble ever. And I understand that I'm speaking very objectively about something that is subjective, but these are the simple facts, okay? This is the greatest team ever put together. Michael Jordan, Larry Bird, Magic Johnson, Scottie Pippen, Carl Malone, Charles Barkley, John Stockton, Patrick Ewing, Chris Mullen, David Robinson, Clyde Drexler, Christian Leitner. The greatest team ever put together. Eight of the top 50 NBA scorers of all time were on this team. Eight of them. In 2017, uh, the NBA, they released their top 50 greatest players of all time. Ten of the members of the Dream Team made that top 50 of all time list. On this team, there were 15 MVP awards. There were 23 NBA championships. This is the greatest team ever. Now, an interesting story about the greatest team ever is that the first time they ever played, they lost. Do you guys know who they lost to? It was a group of college players. Now, to be fair, it was some of the greatest college players in the NCAA at the time, but still no match for the greatest players to ever play the game, right? And even though the players that made up the Dream Team, some of the greatest players ever, they still lost. Why? Because they hadn't learned how to play together. They had never played together. They hadn't learned how to play in unity. They hadn't figured out how to be a team. But after that one loss, just, just one loss, that's all it took, uh, they figured it out. And rather than 12 players doing their own thing, they figured out how to work together as a team. And they functioned together as one unit. And because they did, they were able to experience the benefits of playing together in unity. 
And the same is true for God's people. Every time we gather, we are faced with the option of letting something divisive work its way into our midst or choosing to love one another and worship Christ together in unity. And Psalm 133 shows us that the latter, unity, is always the right choice. Verse 1, he says, How delightfully good when brothers live together in harmony. David, he starts this psalm off passionately reminding us it's good for God's people to live together in harmony. And depending on your translation, what you may be using this morning, it may say, look or behold how good it is when brothers live together in harmony. He's saying, in other words, look, clearly you can see how good it is to be in unity together. David's making this point that for God's people, when they're living together in unity as God's people, you know this is a good thing. You've experienced this is a good thing. You're not going to come across a church or a gathering of God's people who are in unity and see people upset about the unity, right? It's not like you'd hear people griping, oh, everyone's so kind and, and nice. They worship together. They, they forgive each other. They, they help each other. Oh, I don't want to be there. This is the worst. Imagine a husband and wife going, hey, we really got along well together today. Let's not do that anymore. That... That's ridiculous, right? It's, it's funny because we know that that wouldn't happen. When you're in unity, when you're together, it feels good. It feels right. It's the way it's supposed to be. It's emotionally and spiritually fulfilling. And there are blessings that come with close, faithful bonds. And David, he's saying in this psalm, look, look how good it is when you live in harmony with God's people. You know how good it is when you live in unity with God's people. There are many reasons why living in unity is so good, but one of the big ones, the, the perhaps most important ones, is that God did not make people to be by themselves. It is inherently in our DNA to need and even crave community. There's something that I call, I call it lone wolf Christianity. And, and it's this me and Jesus mindset. It's just me and Jesus. It's just me and Jesus. I don't need to be a part of a church. I don't need to be around God's people. I just need Jesus. And that's true. You just need Christ for salvation. But if you want to live a healthy, faithful Christian life, you need God's people. You can't do it by yourself. It's not good for believers to be alone. When you go back and, and you read through the first few chapters of Genesis, you see that God created light, and it was what? Good. He made land and water, and it was good. And he made the trees, and he made vegetation, and it was good. He filled the sea with fish and the sky with birds, and it was good. He put animals on the land. It was good. And then God makes man, and he puts him in the garden to, to work in the middle of, of all these things that he deemed good, and God saw that man was alone. And God said, it is not good for man to be alone. And it's not. And if you've been alone, if you've struggled with loneliness before, you know how real and how true that is. It's not good to be alone because we crave community. We crave connection. And when Laura and I, when we first moved here four years ago, October was four years uh, there were moments after we got here where we felt really lonely. We came here not knowing anybody. And 
we had people all around us, but it took time to build connection and, and community and, and to make friends. And there were some days where that loneliness really hit. And if you've ever moved to a new place, you, you know what that's like. But until that happened, we had lonely days. And the best place, the most fulfilling place for us to face and attack that loneliness that we had was in the midst of God's people, in the church, living together in unity. But a problem is that there's sin in the world, right? And because there's sin, because there's sin around us and there's sin in us and we're broken, we can sometimes search for unity in the wrong places. I remember there were a few times soon after finishing high school where I found myself in settings that offered nothing good for me. And you may have had moments like that in your past. And I remember looking around and thinking to myself, why am I here? I don't belong here. There's nothing good for me here. And in my core, I wasn't fulfilled emotionally or spiritually. And David in this psalm, he's pointing us to God's people and saying, if you have in your life unity with these people, with faithful people, people who can pray for you, people who can bear your burdens, people who can pray with you, people who can encourage you, who can worship with you, who can learn God's word with you, people who can laugh with you, people you can grieve with when you need to grieve, share a meal with, people you can give God glory with and just reflect on the love of Christ with. When you have that, that is good. It's fulfilling. It is delightfully good. It's pleasant. David spends the the last two verses of this short three-verse psalm giving examples of exactly how good it is when God's people live together in unity. He says in verse 2, It's like fine oil on the head, running down on the beard, running down Aaron's beard onto his robe. What a strange example uh, to use for something uh, to remind us of how good something is. Is And there doesn't really seem to be anything appealing or good but having, about having oil poured on your head and running all over you, right? It sounds pretty messy. It sounds a little gross. But David says unity among God's people is like the oil running down off of Aaron's beard into his beard, onto his robe, all the way down his robe. And that might seem a little foreign to us, but for the, the original audience of this psalm, the people who would have been singing this psalm, it would have meant something much more special because anointing the high priest with olive oil was remarkable for them. It was a joyous occasion for God's people. And if you go to Exodus chapter 29, you'll see that God, he gives instruction for consecrating the priests. And in chapter 21, verse 7, he tells them, take the anointing oil, pour it on his head, and anoint him. Verse 21 of that chapter says, Sprinkle them on Aaron and his garments, as well as on his sons and their garments, so he and his garments will be holy, as well as his sons and their garments. This anointing with oil, it made their garments holy among God's people. And what was really happening was a time of reminding the people of God who the only true holy one was, God himself. And the fragrance of the oil, it's not specifically mentioned here in Psalm 133, but it is implied when it says the fine oil, or depending on your translation, it might say the precious oil. And in the following chapter, in Exodus 30, 
uh, verses 23 for, through 25 give instructions for making the oil fine and making it special and precious. It says, take for yourselves the finest spices, 12 and a half pounds of liquid myrrh, half as much of fragrant cinnamon, six and a quarter pounds of fragrant cane, 12 and a half pounds of cassia, and a gallon of olive oil, and prepare from these a holy anointing oil, a scented blend, the work of a perfumer. It will be holy anointing oil. Imagine being there as the people of Israel when the priest was consecrated and anointed. Imagine how pleasant the smell would have been of that fragrant oil as it filled through the congregation. And what David's saying is, you know how when the oil, when it was poured onto Aaron's head, and it didn't just stay on his head, it flowed down into his beard, and then it flowed onto the collar of his robes, and then it flowed down to the edges of his robes. It completely covered him. And he's saying the scent of that oil would have flowed through the entire congregation. And this entire ceremony, it pointed everyone to God's holiness. That's what it's like when there's unity among God's people. It doesn't just affect one person. The blessings of unity bless every single person who's there in the midst of that unity. It spreads to everyone, and everyone benefits from it when it's present. And that unity and its blessings, it's pointing all of us when we have it. It's pointing us to God's holiness. And in Leviticus, God, he tells the people of Israel, be holy for I am holy. When God called Israel to be holy, he was calling them to be set apart from the world, to look completely different from how the rest of the world looked. And when a local church is serving and worshiping Christ together in unity, that is holiness. And it's something set apart from the rest of the world. It's different. It stands out, and it points the world to Jesus Christ. You know, there's, there's no reason. We have about, there's probably 200 people here at the church somewhere today. There's no reason at all that 200 plus people should be able to gather like this and us all get along. And put differences aside and love each other and help each other and forgive each other. There's no reason that we should be able to do that other than the love of Christ. That's it. That's the only thing that makes it make sense. The world should be able to look at God's people and see, physically see and witness in us that there is something different. There is something good. There is something that transcends all of our differences and draws us together. And when we live in unity, the world can see that because together we're representing the love of Christ. And together we can point to him and say, this is why, he is why we do this. Verse 3, the last verse, says, Unity is like the dew of Hermon falling on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has appointed the blessing, life forevermore. If you know anything about Israel uh, and its history and its climate today, then, then you know that Israel is not a country that receives a lot of rainfall. The average yearly rainfall is about 21 inches, and most of that happens far up in the north of Israel. And the southern regions might get two inches per year if it's a good year. So a lot of the country is desert. So you can imagine uh, that water for God's people in this area would be somewhat sacred and important. Right? 
something that needed to be used very wisely, something that needed to be taken care of and preserved when you were able to get it. And Mount Hermon mentioned here in verse 3 is about 50 miles north of Israel, near Syria. And the peak of that mountain, Mount Hermon, is about 9,200 feet. So it's a a tall mountain, tallest mountain in the area. Uh, And as I mentioned, this mountain is located in a very dry area of the world. But because of its high elevation, it gets a lot of precipitation. And you, you can look up pictures. Look up pictures later of Mount Hermon, and, and you'll see uh, that the, the peaks, the tops of the mountain, they're covered with snow year-round because of its elevation. And much of the precipitation Israel receives comes from the snow, the rain, and the dew that falls onto Mount Hermon. And David is saying, unity among God's people is like the dew from Hermon. It falls down onto Mount Zion in Israel. It's like the water that you get from that high mountain that's 50 miles away. And for a nation like Israel in a desert land uh, with very little rain, that water is essential. In other words, it's life-giving. Unity is life-giving. And that's what David is saying here with this example. When we gather here on a Sunday morning, when we sing praises together to God, that is life-giving. When we come together like we are right now and we hear the preaching of God's word, it's life-giving. When you sin against someone in the church and they are able to look at you and say, you know what, I'm a sinner too. I forgive you and I love you. That is life-giving. When a congregation lifts one another up in prayer, it's life-giving. When the church rallies around a new mother and and cooks and brings her meals and and offers to come and watch the baby so mom can take a nap, that's life-giving. When someone in the church is, is grieving and the congregation can hold their hand as they grieve and grieves with them, that's life-giving. And you know why it's life-giving? Because all of those actions and much more are rooted in the love of Christ. And the love of Christ is life-giving. It saves us. It sustains us. It strengthens us. It's life-giving. And David is saying it's life-giving like the dew from Mount Hermon that sustains the land of Israel, that literally probably saves the land of Israel, that strengthens it. It's life-giving. In uh, 1914, during World War I, something happened known as the Christmas Truce. You guys heard about this? You probably heard, heard about this. It's a, it's a fascinating story, and there's a lot more backstory to this uh, than I have time to tell. But essentially what happened was the, le- the week leading up to Christmas, French, German, and British troops began crossing trenches and exchanging seasonal greetings uh, with one another. And this led up happening up to Christmas Day where troops began to venture into what they called uh, no man's land. And in no man's land, the, the war on Christmas Day in 1914, it didn't look anything like a war at all. In no man's land, troops from different sides, they gathered together. Uh, they greeted each other with holiday greetings. They sang Christmas carols together. They exchanged cigarettes and souvenirs from their, from their own home countries. Uh, some even played football together. And during this time, sides allowed other soldiers to bring their dead back, back across their own lines so that they could be buried properly. And for some, this truce, it, it lasted through 
Christmas night. For other areas, it lasted through New Year's Day. And what happened during the war on that Christmas day in 1914, that is an amazing story, right? Like, you don't hear about things like that happening. That is an amazing story. And really what was happening was human beings seeing their enemies as also human. And in a Christmas spirit, you had people on all sides of the war going, it's Christmas, and you know what? I want to live on Christmas, and I want you to live on Christmas, And a truce was formed, this unspoken truce, unordained truce between all sides. Imagine being there that day and actually getting to be a part of something like that. Getting to experience that unity for whatever time it lasted, it would have been a powerful experience. You know, a lot of these these guys, they were 18 or 19 years old, a part of something they probably had no real understanding of. Imagine being there and seeing the British, French, and German kicking a ball around together, playing football, singing together, trading together, even laughing together. To be a part of that and to know, I don't know about tomorrow, I don't know about the next day, but today, Christmas Day, I get to live. That would have spread throughout those troops like the oils spread down Aaron's beard and onto his robes, like the fragrance of the oil spreading through the congregation. It would have been refreshing and and life-giving, literally life-giving and life-saving, like the dew from Mount Hermon is life-giving to the land of Israel. There was power in the unity that happened on that Christmas day in 1914. There's even more power in the unity of a local church collectively serving and loving Christ together as one. The power in that unity is used by God to advance his kingdom and to save souls. If you remember, Jordan, he explained early on in the series what the Psalms of Ascent were. And the Psalms of Ascent were the songs that Jews would sing together uh, as they ascended up the hill to Jerusalem uh, when they were going to celebrate and gather for for the Jewish festivals. The Jewish people that would gather together for these festivals They came from all different kinds of backgrounds, economic backgrounds, different political backgrounds, different theological backgrounds. Some of them wouldn't have even been Jewish by heritage. And if you look at the interactions of of the disciples with Jesus when you're reading through uh, the New Testament, they had all different kinds of economic, political, theological backgrounds when when they would talk with each other and wonder about what the kingdom of heaven was going to be like or who was going to be the greatest or, or who the Messiah was and this and that. And none of that mattered when they were called by Christ. None of it. And at the Jewish festivals, when, when God's people gathered, None of those things would have mattered either. And they didn't. They gathered together in unity to share a meal and to praise the one true God of Israel. The one who has physically rescued them time and time again. The one who has spiritually rescued them time and time again. The one who has time and time again kept his end of the covenant when Israel failed and they failed and they failed. The one who has transformed their hearts. The local church, us here, Talatha Baptist Church, we gather together in unity to share meals and to praise the one true God, the one who has physically rescued us at times, the one who has spiritually 
rescued us, the one who keeps his end of the covenant. It hasn't changed. The one who transforms our hearts. You know, Scripture refers to Satan in Ephesians chapter 2. It calls, Paul calls Satan the prince of the power of the air. The prince of the power of the air. And that is a real power. And throughout church history, it has been overwhelmingly evident that that power, that dark force is seeking to divide the church of Jesus Christ. And that hasn't changed today. And I think in our culture here, that power has convinced a lot of people that Christianity has to fit in this specific box. And in that box, I, I think that we are often convinced that Christianity has to look like me, it has to talk like me, it has to think like me, it even has to vote like me. That's a real temptation, right? But we have to remember That unity among God's people, unity in this room right now, it's not rooted in any of that stuff. It's rooted in Christ alone because our salvation is rooted in Christ alone. I want to give you something to to think about this morning. If a believer sitting next to you right now looked different than you, and not just their ethnicity, that too, but just looked different in any way, in a way that you weren't used to, would that have a bearing on you worshiping and serving Christ together? If a believer sitting next to you voted for a different candidate than you did, and not just a different candidate, but I mean the, the one that you really don't like, you know, the one that, that you really have a problem with, or, or if they leaned in a political direction that you really had a problem with, would that have any bearing on you worshiping and serving Christ together? Or if they came from a different economic background or from a rougher side of town that you don't really favor. Or maybe they interpret a, different, a Bible passage differently than you do. And it's one you feel strongly about. Maybe you hold firmly to the doctrine of free will and they hold firmly to the doctrine of election. Or maybe they said something a few weeks ago that you, you felt was pretty rude and it, it kind of rubbed you the wrong way. I could make this list go on and on, right? But be honest with yourself. Would any of that have a bearing on you worshiping and serving Christ together? And if the answer is yes, and I think if we're all honest, there's going to be a little bit of that that is yes for all of us. If the answer is yes, we need to examine our hearts and we need to examine Scripture and we need to examine the life and the love of our Lord Jesus Christ and be reminded that unity is rooted in Him alone, nothing else. In John chapter 15, Jesus says to his disciples, I am the vine. You are the branches. I am the vine and you are the branches. Christ is the one who is holding us. He is holding our salvation, our eternity, our unity. He is the vine. Politics is not the vine. Political candidates are not the vine. Economic backgrounds are not the vine. How you interpret a Bible passage, that is not the vine. Jesus Christ is the vine. You know, I could travel to the other side of the world today, and I could find a church of faithful believers who don't speak a word of English, who have a completely different culture than I do, who look different, who who interpret Bible passages different than I do, We could have absolutely nothing in common except our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
and have everything that we need to serve and worship Christ together. That is the unifying power of the gospel. It's rooted in Jesus Christ alone, and let's live that out together. That's the call of this psalm. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we're grateful for the power of your gospel this morning. Lord, I ask that as we, we think on Psalm 133 today, we will be reminded of the unity that we have. I pray that we would feel the blessings of the unity into Latha Baptist Church. I pray that we would continue to pursue that unity and worship and serve you together as we have been. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, as Jordan always says every Sunday, we are a coming forward church. Uh, if you have something you need to come forward today, please come. If you'd like for me to pray with you, I will be happy to pray with you. Uh, if, if you just need to come down here and spend a few minutes praying by yourself, you're welcome to do that. Uh, if you'd like to be baptized, please come forward and let us know, and we'll work out a time for you to get baptized. If you've trusted Christ this morning, come forward and let us know so that we can celebrate with you. Uh, if you'd like to join our church today, uh, please come forward so we can welcome you into membership. Whatever reason you have this morning, if you need to come, come.